we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 178 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am Trevor, your host, the Iron Fist, and this is an Australian podcast which talks about news and politics, a lot about religion, and generally things that are going on around the world that we think are interesting and that we want to share with you because we think it's worthwhile knowing. So Mm. we've got a wide range of topics on the agenda for this podcast, and I defy any other podcast out there to cover the breadth of topics that we do. So, <laughs> anyway, with me, as usual, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And for those of you that are keeping track, tonight I'm drinking a White Rabbit Dark Ale, which comes to us from our, oh, what was he, second or third beer sponsor? Wayne. Uh, Wayne-o. Wayne-o, right. which yep. uh, Trevor drank the original six-pack, so he had to replace That's it. That's right. Because so. of the replacements. <laughs> I did. Thank my, you very much, Wayno. My, my conscience got to me. Yep. And of course, Paul, the twelfth man. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Scott. G'day, listeners. Mm. How are y'all? We're all good, and hopefully the listeners are good. Right. We'll just launch into our normal um, list of strange topics, and well, actually, a little bit of uh, feedback and reflection on what we talked about last week. And dear listener, you'll remember I was talking about um, as a lawyer if. There is a plea. Well, if your client tells you that they're guilty, and we were comparing this to the confessional and the different um, aspects in relation to that. Anyway, I said that uh, if your client says that they're guilty, then you can't act for them and you just stop acting, and that's the end of the matter. And guess what? I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No shame in that, Trevor. No shame. so um, Dean Stretton, uh, barrister at law, who who also provided that magnificent uh, Ruddock Inquiry submission that, that many of you... That was truly brilliant. Mm, yes. yep. Dean wrote and said, Hi Trevor, thanks for the excellent ex- episodes recently. The lively discussions, sensible centrism, and yes, religion bashing, send you to the top of my playlist each week. Keep up the great work. Just a small correction on lawyers representing clients who have privately confessed they are guilty. Basically, if you are a solicitor acting for a guilty client, then you can cease acting, but only if the client lets you. And if a barrister, then you should actually continue to act for the guilty client. If you continue to act for the client, then you cannot tell the court that somebody else did the crime, and you cannot say things that are inconsistent with the confession. For example, you can't say the client was somewhere else at a time of the crime. You know, he couldn't set up an alibi. So you can't lie. Is that what he's saying? Yes. So... Essentially, you're limited to arguing that the evidence that the prosecution has put forward is insufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So so there you go. Uh, for the listeners out there who are young lawyers or older lawyers, um, I wonder the if that doesn't give the game away. If the, um, the, you know, act, if mm. the person acting sort of in court is unwilling to well, say, well, he wasn't there, he wasn't there. Does, every, does it not sort of dawn on everybody that he really knows the client is guilty? Yeah, sometimes clients don't say anything. Like sometimes um, accused don't give evidence at all. Mm. And I don't think a jury would necessarily pick up on it. Judge might, but 
jury, I don't think. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, quite often it, there's a decision made as to whether the accused should testify or not. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, Which also... That's precisely why I think we should do away with the jury system. But anyway, that's a topic for another night. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What right. would you replace it with, Scott? I have a panel of judges. Okay, right. Yeah. A panel of judges. Yeah. All right. So it's, depending on how serious the offence is, you go from one judge up to three and up to five. And you wouldn't uh-huh. be concerned that those judges would be um, unduly influenced by the government, for example? I mean, not in Australia necessarily, but in some countries, that's uh, part of the problem, isn't it, that the, the judges work for the government? Yeah, I like the idea of having your peers judging you and making know. sense of whether... where it comes from, but the, when you're asking people who are lay people to sit there and pass judgment on complicated issues, I think mm. that is something that can result in miscarriages of justice. Mm. So that is why I'd prefer to have a judge, you know, sitting mm. in on the, on the whole thing. Somebody you can trust to be intelligent and, exactly. and, and trained well enough to understand the complications. Yeah. And, I uh, mean, I understand mm. that there's, you know, that they don't have juries in Holland. Like the Netherlands, it's all... Really? Yeah, I understand okay. that's the case. In, mm. in I think Indonesia in Japan too, they've only Indonesia just... doesn't have juries, they've got judges. That's right, yeah. yeah. Which is based on the Dutch system, so yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, anyway. For another time. This is for another time, I apologise. Actually, if there, you know, if there's been wide um, publicity, then they can run it without a jury. Oh, they can, can they? So, for example, if they feel that they can't find 12 jurors who haven't been contaminated by media um, sort of information, you, 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 I don't know how it comes about by agreement, and maybe I'm reluctant to guess now because I know Dean Stratton's <laughs> listening and he's going to slap me over the wrist if I get it wrong. Well, if you get it wrong, but, that's no problem. But, Just but, write in again, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, for example, you know how there was a podcast that uh, was looking at that teacher and it sort of reopened a cold case of 30 years ago? Yeah, And yeah. literally millions of people have downloaded that podcast. And there might not be that something many people, in that for you. Not fist. that many people listen to podcasts. But some, in, in cases where there's massive publicity, you can sometimes have just a judge-only trial. But anyway, we've digressed way off my uh, oh, fist was wrong segment. Yeah. The other sort of feedback we got from last week was we were talking about sub-incision in the Aboriginal community and we got this message from one of our listeners who said, I had lived and worked in the Kimberley, Western Australia for a number of years. I've had a number of Aboriginal friends and work colleagues tell me that sub-incision or a form of it is still practised. They refer to it as law and is used by remote communities as punishment pedophiles, rapists, and sometimes young men fathering children out of wedlock. As far as I was told, an incision was made at the base or along the penis so that the sperm would not run along the length of the penis and the male could not reproduce. There we go. Now, our listeners cover a wide <laughs> breadth of knowledge. We've got Dean Stratton, expert on, on uh, legal matters, and we've got this other... I, I won't mention his name, but... Um, Familiar with um, Aboriginal sub-incision practices to some extent. There we go. I mean, even if it's called the law and it's used as a punishment for pedophiles and rapists, and it's still really fucked. <laughs> yeah. 
It's a, it's a pretty extreme. I would hazard a guess, and, and this is um, an uninformed statement, but I would hazard a guess that there would be variations in the practice um, in different parts of Australia. As in some do it and some don't? And, as and, in the and, way they do it mm. and yeah, whether or not they, they use it as a form of punishment in, in those cases that you mentioned. Mm. But sure it would appear that it's still practised in some way, shape or form in some Indigenous communities. Mm. Frightening. Frightening practice to be still it's doing. It's fairly brutal, isn't it? Is it is extremely brutal, and mm. this is the whole point that I think that, um, you know, we keep hearing you've got to have a treaty, you've got to have a treaty, you've got to have a treaty. I don't think we should have a treaty with someone that thinks that that type of thing is acceptable. It is a terribly cruel thing to do to someone. And I don't think it's right. <laughs> Look, it's, you know, young young guys, um, it's a rite of passage, you know, is what it is. It's um, part of becoming a real man. Mm. We, oh, clearly none of us think it's a good idea, um, and I'm not trying to defend it. But I, in some ways, I think... Um, Male uh, infant uh, genital mutilation is uh, even worse in some ways because the the baby is not consenting. Oh come on! A standard circumcision. I, mean, I, I don't mean I don't mean the actual the the actual uh, details of it, but my point being that if the, it's the moral case for it, if it's done with consent is better than when it's done without consent on a, on a helpless infant. Yeah, but I don't think these guys are consenting to it if it's the law. It's, it's put on it as punishment. It's definitely, there's a lot of um, cultural compulsion, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and, and that part I don't agree with, obviously. But um, uh, I think it's in some ways uh, less forgivable to inflict something, any form of mutilation on a baby because that's totally without any consent whatsoever. Well, well I, I don't agree with neonatal circumcision either. However, yeah. I, can, I think I said it last week, that's, that's one thing, but this is something entirely different. Mm. Well, I wasn't going to mention this till later, but we'll skip ahead to the story about the, the title of this is that God didn't get proper consent from Mary. So <laughs> apparently a Minnesota psychology professor caught the attention of conservative pundits this week after tweeting that God impregnated the Virgin Mary without consent. Eric Sprankel, an associate professor, Minnesota State University, angered Fox News host Tucker Carlson and guest commentator Mark Stein. And he wrote in his tweet, The virgin birth story is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. There is no definition of consent that would include that scenario. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> he has a point. Yes. He's and got a very good point. He, yeah. he later added, the biblical God regularly punished disobedience. The power difference, deity versus mortal, and the potential for violence for saying no, negates her yes. To put someone in this position is an unethical abuse of power at best and grossly predatory at worst. Some of that could apply in the Aboriginal situation we're just talking about. I mean, consent has to be freely given in full knowledge. Mm. Actually, I think I've got a little bit of a clip here from Tucker Carlson and his guest as to what they had to say about that. State University professor tweeted this week that Mary the Virgin 
could not have consented the conception of Christ and that God was behaving, therefore, in a, quote, predatory manner. That professor's salary is paid for by taxpayers, also tweeted himself decorating a Christmas tree with satanic ornaments. Have you taken mm. any of his classes, Mark Stein? <laughs> no. And, and the reason is this is the thing that this is because 50 years ago, this kind of shallow banality would have been the province of a drunk undergraduate at three in the morning. Um, I, I mean, basically, the idea that, that God... Uh, has gotten the Virgin Mary back to his pad, and she's saying, I really must go, and he's saying, oh, baby, it's cold outside, and uh, put some records on while I pour. I miss the days uh, when atheists uh, were at least intelligent enough uh, exactly. to take seriously what they were porting to knock down. It's a bit surprising coming from Mark Stein. I... I, I never imagined he was um, a supporter of r religious mythology. Mm, well, there you go. But I think it's a good point, actually. Yeah, the whole story. Mm. I think he's got a very good point, mm. you know, that God clearly did not gain Mary's consent. Yeah. Well, he, my understanding of the story was that... Um, she was quite young, too, wasn't That she? Mary was a bit surprised when she discovered she was up, up the duff. <laughs> I can't remember the exact... Um, <laughs> I think she was she was informed by an angel that she was carrying the Lord of the the Prince of Peace, wasn't she? Look, I think the other thing is oh, perhaps yes, but, perhaps. but the other thing is Mary's mother was also um, a, a virgin. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. I don't know anything about but, Mary's mother. Yes, because um, we've talked about this before that because of original sin, if Mary's mother had actually done the deed, then Mary would have been born with original sin. So her mother as well was somehow... Is this not something from your Catholic upbringing? Because oh, I've never heard this before. Have you, Scott? Does, does this not ring any bells with you at all? No, no. no. I, I, hang on a second. Let's start Googling. <laughs> was Mary's mum a virgin? <laughs> Never come, never heard. I've never heard that. No. no, I think this is a Catholic thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, keep talking amongst yourselves while I get this. <laughs> while I get this straight. How's your beer, Paul? The beer is excellent, Scott. Is yes, good. White Rabbit. It's. Um, I think if Alice had had this with her when she went down the rabbit hole, she would have uh, enjoyed herself much more. Absolutely. Yeah. The Immaculate Conception is the conception of the Virgin Mary free from original sin by no. virtue of the merits of her son Jesus. The Catholic Church teaches that God acted upon Mary in the first moment of her conception, keeping her immaculate. Uh, really? The immaculate conception is commonly confused with the virgin birth of Jesus. That was my understanding. The latter being rather the doctrine of incarnation. So, while all Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, it is principally Roman Catholics, along with various other Christian denominations, who believe in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. So, Gee. she had to be conceived without original sin. So, that was the trick there. But that, that, went, no, that just doesn't fall into place at all for me. Mm. I just imagine she was just a normal human with all the attributes of normal humans but the fact that she 
was impregnated by God uh, was the what Immaculate Conception referred to. Look, it's you can't question this because um, Pope Pius the Ninth um, declared it using papal infallibility. All right, I take it all back. Um, back in eighteen fifty four. So mm. there we go. So yeah. But do you know so that? How the hell did she give birth through an intact hymen? Uh, details. Oh, well, the hymen question. would have broken when she yeah. was giving birth, surely. Um, but yeah. she, her hymen was intact well, until she gave birth to Jesus. Well, maybe it's it, like with all these things, it's all quite unclear. Now, this, as I'm reading it, it says, God acted upon Mary in the first moment of her conception, keeping her immaculate. It's all so that could have been that Joseph could have knocked her up. And well, God, well, this is Mary's mother, so hopefully oh, not. Right. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Case of hello, Mrs. Robinson. But ah, <laughs> 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 oh, it's all confusing. Let's move on. But, um, yeah, if, we, if we're going to get bogged down in, in religious doctrine, but any, anyway, I think good on the Minnesota professor for absolutely, pointing yeah. out. Yes, but you know what? You know what? Catholic popes are like, don't you? Because yeah. uh, the ascension of Mary to heaven was not doctrine until a uh, hundred or a couple of hundred years ago either, was it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, a, f- a, a close friend of mine who also was raised a Catholic uh, told me that. He said that that was made up by a pope at some time, right. this idea that Mary physically, bodily ascended to heaven. Right. And it wasn't part of doctrine prior to that. Right. So the Catholics, uh, they have a bit, of, a bit of form at making this stuff up. It's not in the Bible, is it? Anyway... Back to real life, and let's have a bit of a bag about Scott Morrison and and the boats. But before we do, I came across an article in the John Menadue blog, and it was by Alan Patience, and he was talking about Scott Morrison. And it really rang true with me, because this guy particularly annoys me for some reason. And ScoMo annoys me. know exactly what you think of ScoMo. (laughs) And Alan Patience has put his finger on it, and... It's the guy is fake. That's the thing that gets me about ScoMo. Like, I honestly admire people like Corey Bernardi or, and to some extent, Tony Abbott and people like that who at least are real and have that conviction. He's just, he's a fake. Anyway, a couple of the lines from his um, blog were, or from Alan Patient's article were, talking about Scott Morrison, his pronouncements were invariably undermined by the smug grin he manages to stamp on his face when claiming the high ground from a low moral base. <laughs> he presents as someone hamming it up. He looks like a fake. And further on he says, But it is since he became Prime Minister that Morrison's buffoonery has really come to the fore. The baseball caps and cheesy matiness were so confected, so contrived as to be comical. There are moments when he looks like a mini-Trump. I think that's why I really just really dislike this guy mm. is the fake BS the, that he tries to yeah. put out and expect us to swallow. Yeah, I think the mini Trump is a very good explanation of mm. him. You know, that's a very good uh, descriptor of him. Actually, I, I I wouldn't put him in the same category as Trump, but yeah, I agree with you. He doesn't come across as authentic, and I think a lot of people for a lot of people that's the difference between voting for them and not voting for them as well isn't it to feel a little bit of authenticity in the person hopefully mm. but see what i find really ridiculous is that um why the hell is shorten behind him in the polls as preferred prime minister i don't i don't get it well i do get it 
because he gets bagged all the time in the Murdoch press and it just carries through. So, do you think? Yeah, I think I, so. I also think Shorten has a, a problem with authenticity. Mm. Yes. Because, yeah. as we know, he has a history of changing his position when it suits his um, political purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think I mentioned before, his speech after the Victorian election was very good, though. Like, he actually... He's getting better with practice. Mm, I think so. Anyway, back to Morrison. So, dear listener, election's going to come up in May, probably. And... Well, that depends if they last as long as that. Yeah. But he's going to hang on as long as he can. Oh, he'll he may, hang on as long as he can, yeah. And he's the one who calls it. Yeah. And he likes the trappings of power. Absolutely. And he knows he's not going to have them after the election. Well, I would have thought so. <laughs> So he'd rather a CV that says he was Prime Minister for nine months rather than one that said six months. Yeah. So, so let's, let's go for May. Anyway, the, he's, he's going to say two things in the lead-up to the election. He's going to say that um, the Conservatives stopped the boats and if you vote Labor, then all the boats are going to start up again. And the other thing he's going to say is, you know, trust us with the economy. You can't trust Labor with the economy. So that'll be the two things that he's going to run. So, dear listener, when you hear stuff about stop the boats who and, and Morrison claiming credit for stopping the boats, you need to, at any dinner party or any water cooler conversation or if you see it on a Facebook site or something, you need to butt in and say, bullshit. <laughs> That that's not true, and send a link to the person from the John Menadue blog because they've done a great expose on exactly what happened with the boats, and it was not the coalition who stopped the boats; it was Kevin Rudd. And mm. uh, in the show notes for this episode, you will see extensive notes dealing with what happened here, and we're going to give you a little bit of a background so that you're fully primed, ready for the argument when it comes up, because it's going to happen a lot until between now and May. Absolutely, it will. Yeah. So what we had was lots of boats starting to come in. Uh, we took, we're back in 2011. And, well, at the time, in 2011, in each month, you'll see statistics there showing that there was between... Three, four, five, six boats per month with approximately about 250 to 300 illegal immigrants on, in total for, the, for each month. In September of 2011, Rudd tried to put through a proposal called the Malaysian Agreement. And the idea of that was that up to 800 boat arrivals would be transferred from Australia to Malaysia for their claims to be heard there. And in response, Australia would accept 4,000 recognised refugees from Malaysia. And Malaysia agreed to it. It was signed in January 2011. United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees gave it qualified support. So, and they were basically saying... uh, if you come by boat, you're not getting into Australia and you're going to be shipped back to Malaysia and the people who are waiting in line in Malaysia in a camp, we're going to start taking them. So that was the deal that he'd struck. And that was scuttled by Tony Abbott. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was his talent, was opposing things, never actually supporting anything. So he was against it on the principle 
that Malaysia was not a signatory to UN conventions on refugees and asylum seekers, and so they couldn't be trusted to take these people. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so the argument was, uh, can't trust Malaysia, let's put them on Manus and Nauru. Yeah. Um, Great later, alternative. Later. And the <clears throat> Greens agreed with him. Mm-hmm. So remember that, dear listener. Yeah. There was an option there for these people to be shipped off to Malaysia and the Greens voted against it. Yeah. And I've been to Malaysia twice. It's not a bad country. Mm. You know, I'm sure it's probably pretty awful if you're in one of those refugee camps. But it's not Iraq or Afghanistan. Absolutely. It's not Iraq or Afghanistan. Yep. So what happened then was the people smugglers said, okay, if we can land a boat in Australia, we're, we're still good. So over the next three months... I'm just going to give the monthly totals for boats. It was five, then 10, then 13. Towards the end of the following year, there were up to 47 and 44 boats per month uh, arriving with, you know, 2,500 illegal immigrants. And by the middle of 2013, we were regularly getting 47 boats per month averaging around 3,300 illegal immigrants. So the whole situation had exploded. There were just boats thick on the water and no Malaysian agreement. And at that point, Kevin Rudd said, we will not settle any boat people in Australia. If you come and buy boat, we will not settle you. So immediately in August, it dropped to 25 boats in September 15, October 5, November 5, December 7. So from the mid to high 40s, immediately within four or five months, down to five or seven. It, it broke the back of the people smuggling Absolutely. Movement. That one statement saying you will not be resettled in Australia worked. Yeah. And that's what stopped the boats. Now, after about five months of that, Abbott got elected and he said, we're turning boats back as well. And... Um, it then went to zero. So we've had one boat since uh, in, in, the, in 2014. So, so there you have it. It was, it was really Kevin Rudd's announcement that they would not settle illegal immigrants in Australia that stopped the boats. So why haven't the Labor um, politicians been sprouting that, I wonder? <clears throat> it's just a myth that just keeps getting perpetuated. Mm. So as I've been on Facebook during the week... Uh, I was on ScoMo's Facebook page and he was claiming his credentials for stopping the boats and I put this in with a link to the John Menadou blog and I did it somewhere else as well, I think with the Young Liberal site or something <laughs> like that. So <laughs> couldn't help myself. I don't think anybody responded, but anyway. Uh, Has it been deleted? Uh, I'll have to go and check. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah. So anyway, if you're on Facebook or you're talking to people, you've got to can that myth immediately. Mm, interesting. Now... Here's the interesting thing. So back in those days, at the peak of boat arrivals, there was 18,000 illegal immigrants by boat. 18,365 arrived in 2012-2013. Where did that number of 50,000 come from that the coalition keeps bringing off? Uh, Maybe totals. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so in, in 2012-2013, there were 18,000 <coughs> illegal boat people. What's happened now is 
they're not arriving by boat, they're arriving by plane. Yeah. So there's been an excellent article by a guy called Abul Rizvi, who's got all the facts and figures from the government, relevant government departments, showing protected visa applications by boat and protected visa applications by non-boat arrivals, which are virtually all by plane. So people getting a tourist visa or a visitor's visa, getting into the country by plane, and then once they're here, applying for asylum. That's what we're talking about. So in the heyday of the boat arrivals, illegal plane arrivals was 8,000. Now, in 2017-2018, it's up to 27,931 illegal plane people. So it's way more than the boat people were in the worst year. The worst year, well, the highest amount of boat people in any year was 18,365, and in and planes, we're now up to 27,931 per year. Yeah, so it's even, extraordinary. Even if you look at the protection visa applications by non-boat arrivals, yep. they're all, except in two years, except in 2011-12, It's always been pretty healthy. They've always been higher than the boat arrivals. Yes. Yeah, it's been five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand regularly over time, but in the last couple of years, it's cranked up. And there's all, there have always been people who come and overstay their tourist visas. Yes. They? I can recall, gee, even going back like 40 years ago, I recall uh, there was a young, I, I, I was acquainted with a young Scottish woman, mm-hmm. and she overstayed her tourist visa and... Um, there was the government declared an amnesty, and so she applied and was allowed to stay legally. Right. Maybe because she was Scottish, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't see that as a, an issue. Well, well, what this guy's arguing in the article is that there's a lot of mismanagement in this sort of home affairs department where you really should be vetting people a lot better before allowing them in because it stands out pretty clearly quite often whether they're likely to be... Applying, apparently. The United States is pretty tough, isn't it, at their borders? And I dare say they put a lot of people back on planes without uh, allowing them entry. With with all of these Western countries, um, Australia included, we're very generous to other wealthy Western countries because we know... They're unlikely to stay. They probably want to go back home. That's right. But when it's from a poor country... Bangladesh or something, it's very well, difficult for somebody to get a visitor's visa. But that's logical, isn't yeah, it? That's I mean, right. they're the ones you would logically yeah. expect to want to stay. Yes. Well, they have to put up enormous bonds. To get yeah. a visa. Yeah. To get a, yes, and even from Latin America, I think the uh, people who apply for a student visa have to put up a pretty substantial bond. They have to right. be able to show a bank account with quite a substantial amount of money in it just to get a student visa. For, for Australia. Yeah. Right, yeah. That makes sense. So it shows that they're probably going to go home. Yeah, because a lot of Latin Americans would quite like to stay here as well. Yeah, yeah. So, dear listener, what countries do you reckon are providing uh, all of these illegal plane people? Um, Take a bit of a stab in the dark while you're thinking. But uh, Vietnam, China. The mm. United States. (laughs) Top of the list for... 2017-2018 was Malaysia. Really? Hmm. 
9,319 Malaysians came by plane and asked for protection visas. Doesn't completely surprise me, I have to say, because uh, if you've and you've been to Malaysia, Scott. Yeah, I've been twice. Yeah. It's it's not a particularly fair society if you're not a Muslim and not a Bumiputra. No, indigenous that, is, that, is, that, is, that is very true. There is still certainly a hangover from yeah. the old regime where if you are a Malay, you get certain privileges yes. that non-Malays don't get. Especially with regard to education, admittance absolutely, to yeah. university and uh, government jobs, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I was living in Japan some years ago, I met a... Um, was, no, it wasn't when I was living in Japan, I'm sorry. Yes, it was. There was a guy who was a Chinese, you know, of Chinese descent, and he said he couldn't get into a university. He was clearly of, you know, adequate intelligence. Uh, he couldn't get into a university. So he's Chinese, and he was in Japan. He was of he was Malaysian, oh. but of Chinese ancestry. Ah, okay. So and he couldn't they, get into a Malaysian. They discriminate right, against uh, right. non. Bumiputra, I think, is the term they use for the indigenous Malay people. In other words, whose ancestors, you know, go back in Malaysia rather than China or India, where the other major ethnic groups originate from. There we go. The other um, group who was virtually the same numbers, 9,315, was China, claiming... um, Understandable. And then we had India... Uh, 1,500 of them in a year. Pakistan, 589. Iran, 250. Fiji, 354 Fijians mm. claimed, asked for protection. Well, you know what the situation is politically, don't you? Well, enlighten me on what's the, Well, the Fiji. two main ethnic groups are indigenous Fijians, mm. uh, roughly half, and the other half are the descendants of indentured Indian labourers. Yes. And some years ago when the um, the leader of the Fijian military uh, yes. took over yep. and dictated for a few years, uh, the reason he took over was that they, the indigenous Fijians didn't like the situation where... Uh, well, they'd lost the majority vote at that point. They'd lost point. the majority, and, they'd lost, yeah. and the government was headed by a guy whose ancestry was Indian rather than Indigenous Fijian. Yep. And that was the reason. Yeah. And so I dare say these Fijians who are applying for uh, asylum in Australia are of Indian uh, ancestry. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm hazarding a guess. That here, makes but, sense. Mm. Mm. The other one was um, Indonesia, 515 Indonesians. Mm. There we go. Mm. See, that's really interesting um, you say that about Fiji because there was a woman that used to work for me years ago. And I said, oh, when did your family arrive here? And she said, oh, in 86. And I said, oh, after the Rambuka coup. And she said, yes, exactly. That's right. You know, mm. So. Mm. And I dare say with the Indonesians also because there are some, you know, there's a substantial uh, Chinese minority in Indonesia and they have from time to time suffered uh, not just discrimination, but you know, violence, uh, terrible violence, where women were raped and people were murdered. You know, um, just terrible, terrible things have happened to Indonesians of Chinese ancestry from time to time. Mm. And some of them are obviously not Muslim as well. That particularly the Chinese people would either 
follow a, a Chinese religion of whatever sort, or they might be Christian, mm-hmm. you know, Christian minorities. And not only Chinese Christian minorities, but there are, there are pockets of, of Christianity in various parts of Indonesia. That reminds me, next year I've got a suggestion that we have a list of all of the countries in the world and each week we spin the wheel on a particular country and to, to, to get a particular country at random and then we talk about that country in the following week. Okay. Say something I shouldn't be disappointed, them. but I thought you were going to suggest yeah. a nine fist and velvet glove field trip to right. Southeast Asia <laughs> or something. Yeah. I'm not interested, but you, know, you two can go. <laughs> I don't... I don't I quite like Asia. Yeah. You know. I do too. Well, yeah. I like Japan, but they're not really Asian. So, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, when you go to the very civilised parts of Asia. Do then... you know what I saw the other night? I, I, I wasn't sleeping well. So sometimes when I wake up at 3am, I turn on the TV. And I did it the other night and there was an old movie, an, an American movie made in 1943 called Behind the Rising Sun. And obviously, made in 1943, you wouldn't expect them to paint a very rosy picture of the Japanese. But it was no. a, it was a pic, it was a story set in Japan, just prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was fascinating for the uh, for the stereotypical way the Japanese were portrayed, and all the actors, none of the actors were actual Japanese. They're all <laughs> Western actors and Mex- I think the lead female in the uh, in the movie was supposed to be a Japanese woman. She was actually Mexican, I think. And they all had the, you know, the makeup on the eyes to make them look a bit right. slanty. Okay, right. But it was it was it's kind of interesting to go back and see these old period movies and right. the way they portray various um, ethnicities and their culture. Right. That reminds me, we've um, got a couple of Chinese homestay boys here. They've gone back to China now, but um, I was having this discussion with them about identifying different Asian people just by their look because we were joking how Westerners look at Asian people and think they all look the same, whereas Asian people look at Westerners and to some extent think they all look the same. You're nodding your head in agreement with me here. I've heard this yes. before, yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, I've had this conversation with yeah. with um, with various people, and yeah. you're right. Yeah. So um, I, I was claiming to be quite good at picking different Asian faces. This sounds incredibly racist, doesn't it? But we'll go there anyway. You know, it's just a matter <laughs> of interest. Racist. No. Because no. I'm not being disparaging. No. Um, and I said, you know, I reckon I could pick a Korean from a Japanese, from a Thai, from a Chinese. Anyway, they each had friends from different nationalities, so they got out their Instagram accounts and, and all the rest of it and, and had a little from? challenge, mm-hmm. and uh, I was hopeless. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I... but they were quite often beautiful young teenage girls, yeah. which made it difficult because all the makeup, in my defence. Look, ties have a darker mm. skin about mm. them. Don't oh, they? look, ties can be quite variable. Mm. Look, I probably would uh, do better than you guys because I have pretty regular contact with people from various Asian countries in my uh, professional life. And I've had this conversation, as you know, I used to live in Japan. I used to say to Japanese people, do you reckon you, if I showed you a series of faces of people from Japan, Korea, China, 
um, particularly those three, mm-hmm. do you reckon you could pick them just from the face, not from the clothing? Because mm-hmm. if you're familiar with their clothing styles, mm-hmm. uh, they're much easier to pick. Right. Um, but just from the face. And my Japanese friends would often say, yeah, of course I could pick a Japanese face from a Chinese face. Right. And I tried it several times and they, they weren't that successful. Okay. But if you... I think because they had forgotten how we, we, we take our cues from not only clothing and, you know, cultural trappings, mm-hmm. but also mannerisms and the way people behave in public can be quite distinctly different as well. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a bit quite familiar with Japanese people. I can usually pick a Japanese person before I hear them open their mouths. Right. And I'm, I'm pretty confident I can... I can pick a right. Korean but, but, and a but, Chinese. But do they think that all Westerners look the same? They, like they, they do, yes, right. just yeah. like us. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like people assume there are very little difference, very few differences between, say, Japanese culture and Chinese, whereas if mm. you're familiar with them, they're extremely different in many ways. Mm. And uh, it's the same for them. If they're not familiar with various western cultures they might have trouble differentiating as well boy we have been sidetracked we have so far yeah, this evening we, we have got you know 20 topics to get through oh. and we're at two and a half and we've been down a few rabbit holes off to the side so <laughs> <laughs> mrs fist is going to be knocking on the door shortly and we'll be yeah. barely through the first part um right noam chomsky turned 90 i've read his books you have? I have. Yeah. What do you think? Which ones? Uh, the last one I read was On Power, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was really quite interesting. How he analysed the power dynamics and all that sort of stuff. That was really very interesting. Manufacturing Consent? I hadn't read that one, I don't think. I, um, I read little bits of it. I, I couldn't claim to have read the whole book. Yeah. Seeing we're on a consent theme so far, mm. Chomsky believed that the much vaunted freedom of expression in liberal democracies is largely a sham because powerful interest groups solidly invested in maintaining and strengthening the status quo manage to limit the public discourse with great skill. Once the contours of debate have been firmly drawn and any outliers um, demonstrated to be deviant, public opinion is conditioned to stay within those clearly marked boundaries and not stray beyond them. Chomsky famously called this process the manufacturing of consent. I reckon that would have happened in the USA and here in relation to 9-11 with just heading off to war and you know, overwhelmingly the sentiment in the media was let's go get somebody. That's the guys, okay, let's go and all in. Not enough. You know, he has a point. He definitely has a point. Mm. But I would counter by saying that Chomsky has a pretty strong anti-Western agenda. Correct. And so I think he overstates his case a little bit and while neglecting to compare it, um, and comparisons have value, compare it with, say, the case in China where the media is totally controlled by the state. Mm. And even in Russia, um, since Putin took over, I believe he has reigned in whatever free press uh, had arisen, you know, post the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. So that's true. If all the information you're getting is biased in some way, then there's not really consent. It's manufactured by people who can 
Um, yeah, I, I think manufactured is too strong a word. I think it's it's certainly manipulated mm. and uh, shaped mm. to 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 some degree. Well, I don't think manufactured is too strong a word. If you're going to use the word shaped and manipulated, mm. it's not the same thing though, is it? Oh, I think they're pretty close. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to I'm, differ. I'm with the glove on this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he also said intellectuals are in a position to expose the lies of governments of governments, to analyse actions according to their causes and motives and hidden intentions. In the Western world, at least, they, as intellectuals, have the power that comes from political liberty, from access to information and freedom of expression. For a privileged minority, Western democracy provides the leisure, the facilities and the training to seek the truth lying hidden behind the veil of distortions and misrepresentation, ideology and class interest, through which the events of current history are presented to us. Dear listener, that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. Is, yes. Is we, you know, the three of us, have got some privilege. And the people who would listen to a pod- podcast mm. like this one would mm. be people who are curious and interested enough to actually look for, mm. you know, some semblance of the truth. Whereas I think part of the problem, uh, you know, which is suggested there is that in a comfortable Western society like ours, people just become complacent. Yeah, I was at a, a friend's, well, nephew's place. He's nearing 30, young ki- two young kids, and he had no idea that ScoMo was very religious and didn't know anything about him, really. I had to enlighten him about ScoMo before I left. You <laughs> <laughs> did your duty. People don't have time. Yeah. I don't know that people don't have time. I think people have a reasonable amount of leisure time in their society. I find no. that um, really... You don't have time to watch 30-minute news bulletin a day. You know, I find that really ridiculous. Yeah, I do, I do think that you've... You, uh, what are you going to get from a 30-minute news bulletin? You're going to get a hell of a lot more than not watching it at all, mm. you know? Yeah. And even that, you can fast-forward the news and the... You know, you can... <laughs> You can record it, ladies and gentlemen. Do what I do. I go home to watch the news at nine because right? mm. <laughs> I record it at seven, but I don't get around to watching it till nine. Mm. And then, you know, I fast forward the uh, articles that are very boring. You know, I don't bother watching I, the sport or the I, weather. I, I don't know that it's that easy. Technology makes that sort of thing very easy these days. You head off to work at 7.30 in the morning and you don't get back till six and you're got to feed the kids and do whatever else and crash into bed at 9 o'clock. It's not easy for people to keep. And the news isn't going to give you any insight. So I think, the, I think, I think the ABC I think news gives you some more insight than the others. Well, on the, anyway. That are on offer. But, you know, compared with other parts of the world, Trevor, you know, uh, people in other less rich countries work a lot longer hours than we do here in Australia. Oh, no. Yes, they do. We, we, we work long hours in Australia. Well, I know my Latin American friends, when I ask them, I say, what are your working hours like? And they're like, oh, they don't finish work till, you know, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. Do they have a siesta? They might in some mm. cases. Because often in Latin America people go home and have a siesta for three hours. Well, it depends on how far you live from home. Yeah. A lot of them commute to work, yep. so they're not going to go home for a, for a siesta. Yeah. But no, I think um, no, I think in Mexico they have a bit of a tradition of siesta, but in other Latin American countries it's not like that. They might have an hour 
an hour for lunch or something like that. Okay, seeing I've already, uh, let's see, Australian working hours. Hang on, bear with me one second. <laughs> oh, you're saying against, what were you saying? As opposed to poor people, uh, poor countries, is that what you're saying? Or? No, I wasn't saying the very poorest of countries. I was saying right. those sort of middling countries like um, Brazil and Colombia and right. countries like that, where people aren't all desperately poor, but they do, you know, they do work pretty long hours, a lot of them. I might have to cut this out because I can't uh, Google this. My ex-wife, as you know, is Japanese, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, on the subject of being able to recognise people from other cultures, she told me um, once her late grandmother said to her, you know, because when she found out she was going out with a, a Western guy, she said, you know, how can you tell them apart? <laughs> something like something to that effect. That's funny. It is funny. Right, dear listener, we're back after a brief edit, and I have to say that the 12th man is correct. I've quickly looked at OECD rankings, average annual hours actually worked per worker, and the hardest working members of the OECD would be Mexico, followed by South Korea, Greece, India, Chile, Russia, Poland, Latvia, Israel, Iceland. Uh, the average is 1,763, and Australia is below average, 1,669. So just above Finland. So anyway, we're in the bottom half when it comes to working hours. You're correct. Sounds like time for a song. <laughs> <laughs> It does, doesn't it? Oh Can I bring it up? Finland, Finland, Finland. Finland. <laughs> the country where I want, want to be. Only trekking or camping. Or just watching TV. Enough of that. Right. Okay. Boy, we are really diverting on this one. <laughs> we are. We've not covered Gosh. half the time. Gosh. Okay. So Chomsky, uh, he's done. 90. Yeah. yeah. George W. Bush. Um, George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush. Thank you. Velvet no Yeah. There was images on Facebook about the service. And during the service, there was the reciting of the Apostles' Creed. It was a very religious service, actually. I've got a link here to the, the Order of Service document. You can actually read it. Prayers and stuff everywhere. Thick with religion. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, mm. the Bush family is a very religious family, you know. It's Have they always been? Because George W. Bush was often described as a born-again Christian. He was a bit of a playboy, isn't Well, he was a bit of a playboy and a drink when he gave up the booze. Mm. And the cocaine. Oh, I didn't realise he was in the coke as well. Oh, surely. Mm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know either. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. So all of, the presidents, George w. <laughs> all, all of the surviving presidents are there. Uh, it looked quite awkward with Trump and next to um, the Obamas, etc. Oh, really? Mm, very awkward. But Not to um, mention the Clintons. So the, the, and they were further along. Mm. So they're all reciting the Apostles' Creed. And, of course, Trump doesn't even pretend to say it. And he, gets, he doesn't know it. He gets well. He can read it from the order of service. He's got True. a pamphlet in front of him, mm. but he gets bagged in the media for not showing respect and for not reciting the Apostles' Creed. 
I'm actually with Trump on this one. Yeah, he's showing a bit of authenticity there, isn't he? He, he, he didn't pretend. He just stood or sat stony-faced and didn't pretend to mouth the words at all. He so, was bored because it wasn't about him. Well, that's true. <laughs> but I dare say if you were there, 12th man, you would be with Trump on this I would issue. Have, yeah, I would have sat there stony-faced as well, thinking, what's this bullshit? Mm. The Apostles' Creed. Should I recite it? Go ahead. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. That sounds. um, It's. We used to say something in chapel in primary school that was very much like this, but it was. um, I think it was called the Nicene Creed or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or the Apostles' Creed. And it was all that. But, you know, it started off. I believe in Father. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. It was probably the same, but it yeah. didn't have the bit about the Catholic Church. No, we still had the Catholic Church in there because it oh. was universal. So you were in an Anglican, yeah, Anglican school, school yeah. and you were reciting, I believe, in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Yeah. Wow. And there was something else that was slightly wow. different there. Born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died and was buried, he descended to the dead. We never said that. Right. That was where he apparently descended to hell and then came out of hell and rose again. Yeah. Hang on. Sorry, in the Anglicans, yeah. Christ descended into hell. Well, that was the story, was that I... he descended to hell when he died because they said that he descended to the dead in this oh. Apostles' Creed. So, so in the Catholic... Doctrine in the Anglican doctrine, he went down to hell. Yeah, had a look around there. Yeah, okay. But you know, the but Anglican he's the Church is has... the only spirit that's actually been able to go into hell and out again. Right. Because if for all the rest of us, it's a one-way trip down there, never coming out. But the Anglican Church has, um, you know, the original Anglican Church theologically was not too different to the. To Catholic theology, it was mm. just the fact that Henry VIII wanted to get married again, so he yeah. split off and said, uh, "We're not part of the Catholic Church anymore." But theologically, they didn't deviate too no, much until just... recent years, where you've got this evangelical wing of of Anglicanism in Australia, mm. at least. You mm. know, like in in Sydney, at least, they're mm. much more evangelical than some other parts of the Anglican Church. Yeah, I understand the doctrines are very similar. I'm just surprised that Anglicans would state, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Mm. I just yeah, it's a little thought they'd chop that well, That they would mention the word Catholic. Yeah, but Catholic means universal. Yes. Yeah, so that's right. it is a, we believe in the Holy Universal Church. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Catholic means universal. Yes. Right. It's used as it an does. adjective sometimes. That's a very, very, very Catholic, you know, means oh. kind of. Common or universal. Yeah, okay. Mm. Right. I was listening to some a podcast, uh, The Intercept, which, holy smokes, did it bag George H.W. Bush. That guy was evil. Like, he, like Cam Riley gave him a good serve, and we gave him a bit of a serve, but if you really want to know 
how bad H.W. Bush was, then subscribe to The Intercept and listen to that episode. And it made me think, I was convinced afterwards that Trump will not go down as the worst ever president in my view because H.W. Bush is there, I think, at this stage. I don't think Trump's overtaken him yet because the interference in in other governments around the world, the regime change he was involved with, plus the shitty things he did, he's, he, he, in his term, did worse than what Trump's done so far. Give him he time. Just, you know, Trump is just a buffoon and an ugly person and... H.W. had a veneer of Texas civility about him that sort of made it appear not so bad. But the actual things he did outranked Trump at this stage. Trump's only been at it a couple of years. Yeah, give him time. But uh, he's got a lot of catching up to do. So anyway, if you're interested in that, uh, The Intercept. So um, still on America, General Motors um, decided to cancel 1,400 manufacturing jobs. And, of course, Trump went to the election saying he was going to save these jobs. Only 1,400 or 14,000? Maybe it was 14,000. You're right. 1,400 doesn't sound like enough. Hang on. Let me just see on this link here. I can't get it. Um, A lot. There's a crazy tax regime happening with America. So the Republicans passed an unbelievable... Unbelievably good for corporations tax break. Far too generous to corporations. So, dear listener, if an American company moves overseas and conducts normal business of just running its factory, selling its widgets, and collecting a profit, the US government will not tax them at all. Zero tax on that. If they're charging intercompany loans for um, intellectual property and patents and trademarks and things, then the government will charge them tax on that income. But actually operating a business in a normal fashion, they won't charge tax at all. Why wouldn't General Motors shift their entire operation Why overseas? Why wouldn't they all It's just the an incentive to move your jobs overseas. Mm-hmm. Of course they're going to. These are the insane laws that get passed when rich people get power and convince the government to do them, yeah. to do these things. It's the old putting the fox in charge of the hen house um, it was, yeah. it analogy, was, it, isn't it? It made no sense whatsoever. I mean, I didn't, I didn't follow it when it was being passed, but after it was passed and I started to read into it, I thought, this was bloody hell, these guys are doing themselves out of dough. Yep. Well, they're doing the, the <coughs> common American taxpayer out of dough. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Another item on tax. Do you guys ever watch MasterChef? No. No. <laughs> really? <laughs> Were you aware of Heston Blumenthal? Uh, no. I did read up on him when, you know, sir, when I saw the name in the email. Right. But, but you weren't aware of him before that? No. Very famous chef worldwide. Right. And very famous for doing really strange things with food and doing a lot of stuff with dry ice and, and making food that... You know, looks like ice cream, but is that in fact a savoury dish? And or looks like a savoury dish is in fact ice cream? Like he's sort of he's a real chemist when it comes to food and and making things look strangely out of place, but tasting fantastic. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, he's um, got 
he was actually, uh, I think he won the the most Michelin stars. He got, he won the like the Michelin star award for the best restaurant in the world at one point. So, and he's got one restaurant here in Australia. The bastard doesn't pay any tax. He's got offshore tax haven stuff happening. He's running his businesses through a series of notorious offshore tax havens um, in the Caribbean island of Navis, which is a notorious jurisdiction where there's zero tax. So essentially, if he makes a dollar here in Australia, he just sends an invoice from the Caribbean to reduce his tax in Australia, move the profit to the Caribbean and not pay a single cent. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised. I just think we need to ban these people from operating business. It, it, it shouldn't be allowed. It shouldn't. It really shouldn't. It, it should be. You file a tax return and are you shifting any money to a country like that? Alarm bells should be ringing and, and the tax office should be there straight away. I, I like Scott's idea. You pay tax not on... Profits, but on what is it? Turnover, yeah, revenue. Yeah, I mean, if if he's making a a decent living in Australia, Mm. he should be making his contribution to the Australian. um, Yeah, so come here, set up a restaurant, get all the accolades, appear on MasterChef, earn all this money, and just shift your profits overseas and not pay any tax here. So why isn't this coming up in you know in these online these television chat shows that? Uh, like to, you know, raise controversial issues. Why aren't they raising this sort of issue? Oh, I don't know. Qantas, uh, leading up to Christmas. Yeah, this one made my blood boil. <laughs> they put out a call to their staff. We require volunteers to assist at the self-service check-ins in auto bag drop area, busing gates, concourse arrivals halls, and at the transfer desk. The roles allocated to volunteers will depend on their preferences, skill set and security requirements. So they've asked their staff to volunteer time in the busy lead-up to Christmas. Volunteer as in unpaid? Correct. They'll only be paid if it happens that the shift falls within their normal rostered working hours. They're asking their staff to work for free in the busy Christmas period. Unbelievable. It is. Just pay people. Exactly. You're making money. Pay them. What, what, what is Alan Joyce's bonus? Oh, it's a couple of million dollars a year. Yeah. I think it's more than a couple, isn't it? Well, I couldn't tell you, but it's a hell of a lot. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot. Does he do any volunteer work at the, um, the check-ins? I don't know. But, you know, and this is at the time when Qantas will jack up prices because it's a busy time of year anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Mm. Did we talk about Baby It's Cold Outside? We did. We did, yeah. Right, we've done that. That's been in the news a lot. It has, mm. it, it, yes. There yeah. was an article in The Guardian about it as well as on the ABC. But I think it's, I just think people read too much into I these do things. too. I think know. it was it's, just a playful uh, description of courtship in the United States in the 1950s, you know. I don't know what we said last time, but certainly you've got to put things in context. When you, I Which know context? I, context. Of, 2018 or context 1950s America. Of the time and also the scene, the visual scene that goes with it. And 
her reactions and stuff. I think at the time when we spoke about it, I was a bit... You said it was predatory. I, I, yeah. I having, didn't get that at Having all. thought about it, her facial reactions are so playful and enjoying the whole exactly sort of thing that really in the context of her enjoying it so obviously on her face. Yeah. Uh, she was torn between wanting to be to there mm. and knowing that her reputation could be mm. sullied. There we go. Gay conversion therapy, Scott? <laughs> yeah. Ever been subjected to that? No, I've never been subjected to that. Uh, <clears throat> no, I've never been subjected to it, thank God. Thank God. Yeah, Queensland Health Minister Stephen Miles has said the Queensland could become the second state in Australia to ban so-called gay conversion therapy. You know, of course, Victoria was the first one that did it. Queensland will follow up. The dangerous and discredited practice was thrown into the spotlight two weeks ago after a Victorian branch of the Liberal Party put forward a motion for the party's upcoming state conference that called for legislation allowing healthcare providers to offer counselling out of same-sex attraction. The motion was pulled by the state president, Michael Keane Kroger, after public outrage. And, you know, this was just the Mormons in control. That's all. They were putting it up. It got pulled by Kroger. But, you know. (laughs) They got a thing with gay people. They do, yeah. Yeah. This is just the tip of the iceberg, ladies and gentlemen. As they start to spread their tentacles, you're going to see more of these outrageous things come up. And while you've still got the sensible people in charge of the party, they'll knock it down and it won't get voted on. But over time, as they take control, these things will get voted on, they'll become policy, and then they'll be out on their ass for a generation. Mm. It's not just the Mormons, though, is it? No, it's not just the Mormons, it's everyone. conservative Mm. Christian groups would probably share the view that it's a thing. I reckon this is an example of the Andrews government having a ripple effect. Absolutely, I think one of the great things about the Andrews government being so progressive and having success is it's given a bit of backbone some of the other potential Labor governments around the country. So Queensland, I think, has looked and gone, oh, we're doing okay, let's just follow. And if that's what happens, great. Well, absolutely. That's why dying with dignity is going to get up in this state next because Andrews went through it first. Mm. So. So his effect on Australian political life and culture is going to be quite profound by the time he's finished. Absolutely. It'll be not only what he's done in Victoria, yeah. it'll be his effect on the other states and potentially the federal government. Mm. So if you're listening, Daniel, well done. Mm. Well, I mean, he's got at least two terms left in him now. Mm. Yeah. listener, as you know, uh, I subscribe to the Courier Mail and there was a headline <laughs> that grabbed me from... Des Horton is this columnist in the Courier Mail, and he's straight out of central casting for just a stuck-up, snobby <laughs> arsehole from the right wing. And <laughs> in the, in the headline in his article, I kid you not, this was it word for word. Thank God for Adani, Gina Reinhart and Clive Palmer. In their hands are some of the largest coal reserves on the planet. If Palaszczuk doesn't like it, she can lump it. As in lump of coal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank God for Adani, Gina Reinhardt and Clive Park. Gosh. Goodness me. Yeah. I mean, Adani's going to look very ridiculous. It's going to be a half-dug hole because India's already moving down the roads of 
renewable energy. Yeah, but I know they've still got a long way to they'll go. They'll still be burning coal. They'll still be burning coal for a long time. There's no doubt about that. But you know, climate change is real, ladies and gentlemen. It is real, and <laughs> we've got to stop burning this coal. Mm. Angela Merkel going, going, gone. Is there, I think her replacement has been announced. Well, the replacement for the party chairman has been announced. Right. And yeah. uh, one of the accusations is that she's a mini Merkel. Uh, her, in her acceptance speech, she said that she was not a mini Merkel, that she was uh, very much her own self. She's a Catholic and a lunatic, not a right. Really? Yeah. Mm. She's from, well, there's... Can't see those two things going together. <laughs> oh, they can go together, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Merkel is very much a centrist politician. You know, she's from the she's mm. from the centre right party. Like the CDU is the centre right, but she's very she's made the party stick to a very much a centrist platform. This other woman is very much from the right of that party, mm. and so they're going through the same sort of commotions over there as what we are over here. You know, you've got commentators saying that they've got to move further to the right. Blah 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 blah. Mm. Because, you know, they've got alternative for Deutschland and that sort of thing, which is coming up on them. Well, apparently there's a lot of unhappy Germans. Oh, yeah. And mm. there's a hell of a lot for them to be unhappy about. So on the surface, Germany appears to be an economic success story. Its GDP has grown consistently for nearly a decade, and unemployment is at its lowest since reunification in 1989. Sounds good. Um, so... Overall, the economy sounds like it's going okay. But guess what? To maintain competitive advantage, companies have been holding down wages. So the very skilled workers in export-oriented manufacturing are going okay, but anyone less skilled and on low wages are not doing so well. So the, um, uh, the lowest 40% of households have faced annual net income losses for around 25 years now. So so Germany used to have pretty good strong union movement and strong social welfare, but that's kind of disappeared over the last 25 to 30 years and um, they've got a middle class that's disappearing and a lot of people struggling and having to have two jobs and all that sort of stuff. So there we go. But their welfare system would be under pressure as well, wouldn't Mm. it, Mm. from um, taking care of a lot of um, migrants. Mm. So the other thing was that um, at the height of post-war prosperity, 90% of jobs um, were permanent with protections. Mm. But now that figure has fallen to 68.3. So a lot of people on short-term casual contract stuff. big shift, isn't it? Mm. Yep. Right, Was asked us a question. He said, why is wealth inequality a big deal? And Was uh, gave an example of uh, how he has been quite successful in life economically and is financially independent, whereas one of his relatives is not so independent and why should he provide any money to subsidise a lazy relative, I'm paraphrasing here. Okay. The wording wouldn't have been as quite as tough as that. But but was we're not talking about people on 100, 200, 300,000 a year. We're talking about the 1% who are obscenely rich. 
the top three people in America own as much as the bottom 50%. Like, it's, there are people with obscene amounts of money in the 1%. And you might say, well, good luck to them. But the problem is they have incredible power over our political process. They can just buy politicians and they can get laws changed that, like in America we're just talking about, where no tax is payable by US corporations on factories that they operate in other countries. Ludicrous. So all sorts of incredibly unfair rules that just benefit the wealthy get passed because with massive inequality, these people have unbelievable power to to change the laws that that are made in our parliaments. So there are a thousand and one examples of that happening. And actually, one I wanted to talk to you about, 12th Man, you're a fan of... Um, well, have you ever heard of the Koch brothers in the yeah, USA? I've heard of them. What do you think of them? I'm not a fan, mm. but um, came across something interesting the other day with regard to Spiked, which is a magazine that I'm a fan of. Damn, I wanted to surprise you with this. Well, you didn't because <laughs> oh, um, the Koch brothers apparently donated money to Spiked and to some of the um, events that Spiked uh, were involved with in, t- in terms of free speech and things like that. Yep. And, uh, in fact, Spiked uh, just recently published a letter from George Monbiot. Yes. And George Monbiot was uh, attacking Spiked and having a go at them and saying, you are really a front for these Coke unscrupulous Coke. right-wing rich people. Yes, uh, and Spiked published it, and they said, no, it's completely transparent. We accept money from them because they offer it to us, uh, no strings attached, and why shouldn't we accept it? Because Spiked, like a lot of online journals, relies on donations. When you say it's completely transparent, it wasn't transparent until he exposed it. So there was nothing on the Spiked website or in any of their publications, mm. even when they'd been commenting on the Koch brothers, mm. to say the Koch brothers are a donor okay, to our organisation. Perhaps it wasn't transparent. But mm. they didn't try to deny it and they didn't try... Well, and... they couldn't at that point. Well, so yeah. they just said, oh, yeah, well, we're entitled to take donations. Yes. But the point is, if you're going to take donations from a group like that, yeah. you, if you're honest about it, you would say, here's our list of donors. Perhaps. Uh, when reading our comments about the Koch brothers, mm. take into account that we're getting money from them. Yeah, but look, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to defend the Koch brothers, but if they donate money to a, a, a good cause, and I think free speech is a damn good cause, mm. uh, good luck to them. I mean, I, I don't suppose we can say the Koch brothers are entirely evil. They do a lot of bad things and they certainly corrupt the American political system. I totally agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. But if they're giving, giving money to a journal that uh, challenges political orthodoxy, then I support it. Yeah, but are they giving money to shut down that? Um, because I agree with you on free speech, but is, is the motive for them to donate money to Spiked so that Spiked no longer uses free speech against them. 
I don't think mm. so because if you if you've been following Spiked, they pretty <coughs> much will have a go at any 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 orthodoxy, and that's what I like about them is that they're not afraid to say what is. Well, well the George Monbiot article really illustrated different times where you could say that actually Spiked's quite right wing in its. A lot of people accuse Spiked of yeah, being right wing, and, and more and, than just on the freedom of speech issue. On climate change and things like that. Yeah. And so, I, I agree, and I yeah. don't always agree with everything that Spiked publish. You know, yeah. I don't agree with all their writers on everything. Yeah. But what I like about them is they're unafraid to challenge the orthodoxy, whatever it is, on any particular topic, and I yes. think that's healthy. Yeah. I certainly now take anything in there with a grain of salt, Um much more so than I would have before. But now you should that do I know, that anyway, shouldn't you, no, with everything? Now that I know that the Koch brothers are financially backing them and that they are prepared to take Koch brother money, mm. I'm highly suspicious of, of what they've got to say now. Okay, which online journal is pure as the driven snow? Who, well, the point is, who knows? What, you know, Wall Street Journal is owned by... Is it, is it Murdoch? Which one does... Um, which one does um, Jeff Bezos own? What, um, Ooh, is is that the Washington Post? Couldn't tell you. So yeah. if you, you know, the, the point is that was pretty naughty of them to be accepting money from those guys without... Without uh, publicly announcing it. Indeed, I think. Yeah. Well, if you want an Australian journal that's an uh, online journal that's... Uh, as pure as the driven snow, I think that the conversation is probably the closest thing we've got to it. Do you think? Yeah. I, I find that extremely left-wing. Well, it might be extremely left-wing, but it is it is funded by universities and subscribers like myself. Yeah, but mm. you know, if you if you read the articles, it's it takes a very left-wing line a oh, lot of yeah, the time. Yeah, but you've also got um, God, what's her name? Oh, Annabelle Crab. No. <laughs> Uh, give us another clue. Hang on a second. Anyway, uh, was up. When we come to inequality... Michelle Grattan. Right. Oh, yeah. Apologise. Okay. Uh, where you've got people who are extremely wealthy <clears throat> in the 1% class, their ability to get whatever they want out of our governments is pretty astounding. Yeah. And you've only got to look at America to see... You know, they want gun control, they want drug legalisation, they want all sorts of things, but they're never going to get it because the 1% just controls the political process over there. So, and that, is the, that is the big problem when you have yeah. got such a but look, massive disparity in wealth. Yeah. It's not only the super wealthy. I mean, I've come across people, yeah. and I had a conversation with some friends many years ago, and they were, you know, I suppose like was was they were hardworking. They were, you know, they were working class people, but they were hardworking. They'd uh, established their own small business, worked hard. They'd done pretty well, and they were well off. And they, like a lot of people in that situation, resented even you know a few extra dollars of tax a week that might be, might be taken from them to support unemployed people, to give them the dole. And they, and they said to me in a conversation, they said, why should, why should we pay for, you know, lazy bums who can't get off their asses and go out and get a job? And, and I said to them, yeah, look, you're always going to have a few people who are slack and don't work as hard as you do. 
and you might see them as undeserving, but, you know, take yourself off to a poor country where they don't have social security. And what do the, the desperately poor do? They do whatever they need to do to survive. So choose what sort of society you want to live in. Do you want to live in a society where if you've got any money at all, you build a big wall around your house with broken glass in the top of the wall to keep out those who don't have anything? Or do you want to live in a country where you can, you know, have a nice house, you don't have to build a big wall around it because you know that even the poor people, they get by. You know, Mm. they won't live a lavish life, but the government gives them enough to survive and they're not coming around looking for an open window in your house, you know? Yep, yep. And that's that's what I want. I want a society where even even the bludgers are not desperate. Correct. It's incredibly depressing to walk through American cities and just see beggars on the street. Terrible. And um, uh, the homeless. Yeah. The, the, you know the whole. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, we. I was in San Francisco, mm. and you know there was that's apparently the homeless mecca. Yep. And there were a hell of a lot of people in the streets. Yep. Yeah. Now, now, we have homeless people here in Australia. We do. But invariably, that that's as much a mental health issue yes. as anything because people are going to these guys and saying, come on, come off the street, we've got a place for you, and they don't want to leave. They don't want to go. So that's the difference. Yeah. yeah. So and it's around 100,000 in Australia. Yep. Right. The figure, the, the government yep. figure that's often published is around 100,000 homeless people mm. all the time. In mm. Australia. Because sometimes you get these famous sort of bagmen. There was one in Tawong at one stage, and he'd been approached multiple times to try and get him into facilities, but he just didn't want to have a bar of it. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, the problem with, with inequality is, A, the really rich just control the political process and get whatever decisions they want, and B... It's really ugly as a place to live when you've got poor people who are just thrown on the scrap heap without a chance, and it's dangerous and unhealthy. And you know, you for them and for everybody, you couldn't pay me enough to live in the states and put up with the stuff that they're putting up with there. So that you know, the unequal society there is really ugly. I reckon we're really over time and. I want to really get into neoliberalism, and that's going to take far longer. So, was that whole discussion is going to be expanded further, and we're going to talk about neoliberalism, and we're also going to talk about um, how that's affected private health insurance mm. and Medicare. Look, it's good that was a raised mm. the topic. It's it's a mm. it's a valid topic to mm. discuss because I don't think any of us expect everybody to live exactly mm. equally. You know. Yep. I mean, it's never going to be like that. No, I don't think we... I personally have a little saying. I say I'm not in favour of equality of outcome, but I am in favour of equality of opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And and often the really wealthy have got their, sure, hard work, determination, skill, etc. But often there's a real element of the the use of monopoly power as well, like things that aren't that healthy for our society. So, you know, we all want our doctors to be... You know, a top surgeon should be on good money. Many of, you know, a heart surgeon's on on $3 million a year is quite common. Is that really that high? Really? You know, and that's an abuse of the system. You know, we should have a proper, 
we shouldn't have the private health system we've got at the moment and it shouldn't be, you know, common for a heart surgeon to be able to earn $3 million a year. That's just too much. So I don't care how good you are. So, yeah, so, I, I think uh, I tend to so, agree with you. I and, and that's that using you. facilities that our society has built yeah. and relying on a lot of stuff that society has built. And there's very and few people education. earning, you know, these extreme amounts who who truly do it all on their own. There's a lot of society input there that they happen to get a hold of. Right. So uh, the other example would be these arseholes in banking and finance who are just shuffling money around on computer screens that does nothing for our society. But, you know, high risk, oh, well, if it all goes bust, who cares? But, oh, if I crack a winner every so often, you know, I've got myself a few million, like... You but know, our I, banking I, I, system is is guaranteed by the government. Yeah, that's, so that's right. The banks are, are not allowed to fail. Yeah. It's you know as they as they say it's what is it? It's capitalism when they're making money and socialism when they're when they're not. Correct. Yeah. So anyway, I think the econ- economics will be a topic for the next week. Neoliberalism and and the health insurance debate, and a bit of a review of the year that was, because we're probably coming up to our last... The year that was, or the year that wasn't. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Or maybe one after that. Anyway, we'll see. Well, dear listener, time to thank the patrons. Starting at the top, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Hardbottom, Wayno Ayame, the beneficiary, Alison Steve, Tony Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane Bromwin, Matt J, Robbie, Dean Rod Palais, Matic Man, Was, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Less is More, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Ken and Craig. Thanks, Craig, for the uh, donation. Craig used to be a patron and... He didn't like the sort of regular payment and he just uh, sent us a one-off donation. So you can do that as well if you don't like the idea of patrons. So thanks, Craig. Much appreciated for that. So um, patrons, uh, you help keep the podcast going because, well, look, let's face it, we do it anyway. But we actually have quite a few expenses. So um, you might have noticed uh, during the podcast that we refer to you know, articles that have come from a variety of sources and we've got hosting fees and all the rest. So with the website, with the hosting of the MP3 files and subscriptions to The Guardian, Crikey, Medium, our RSS feed reader, The Australian, Sydney Morning Herald, Sam Harris, The Courier Mail, we actually, um, like monthly subscriptions are like $152 a month. So um, certainly the patrons help with that and that helps us give you a wide variety of information from different sources left right and in the middle so um so yeah thanks for for being patrons the other thing is just generally as an industry in podcasting typically about one percent of listeners are actually paying patrons and you know, our downloads are somewhere between 250 and 300. So to get like 37 patrons means that we are really um, quite exceptional in the number of people who support the podcast. So good on you, dear listeners, for recognising the benefits of, of helping out. And it's actually heartwarming to know that so many of you don't have to pay, but recognise it's the right thing to do. So thank you for that. 
The other thing is that um, you could leave us a testimonial and it's nice to have ones on iTunes as well. So if you head over to iTunes and leave us hopefully a five-star review and some kind words, that would be good because we haven't had any for a couple of months. And we're up to about 300 Facebook likes on our Facebook page. If you haven't liked the page already, uh, could you do that? And a few things in the new year, as I mentioned before, we're looking at, um, you know, we'll pick a country of the week and talk about that. And I'd like to do a few things. Is anybody out there an expert in search engine optimization and helping uh, helping us tweak the website so that we get a better presence out there? And if anybody wants to help out, I know Woz has been helping with the uh, Secular Index and he's been going through and finding mistakes and people who shouldn't be there and, 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 and other information. So thank you, Woz, for that. If anyone else is out there and wants to help out in some way, there are all sorts of little jobs that I can find for you if you want to. So get in touch. So, um, so anyway, it's nice that we're building this little community and uh, thank you once again. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. It was an unusual episode. I know we diverted over all sorts of crazy <laughs> up and down different rabbit holes. But we've come out at the end and here we are. So congratulations for, for staying the distance. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much for tuning in. Talk to you next week. Thanks. See ya. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.